Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness toward us. Thank you that you have considered us, that you have provided for us, particularly in providing Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you are good to us. Thank you that you have promised us that you would be with us when we gather together, that you would give us your spirit when we would ask for him. And so we ask, Father, this morning, please give us your Holy Spirit. Cause us to be aflame with worship of you. Lord, cause our worship to come to you as a sweet savor. Father, be with us now. Teach us and change us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please stand and join with me in our call to worship. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains wave and swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Join me as we pray our prayer of confession this morning. Heavenly Father, you are a mighty fortress a fortress in which we can hide and have safety. And, Father, this morning as we come to you, thankful that we can call you Father, thankful that you have called us your sons, thankful that you are merciful to us. We recognize this morning that we have sinned, that we choose other places of refuge which are no refuge at all. Father, when we should hide ourselves in thee when we should stand with Christ and testify to him when we should confess you before men when we should speak the truth to our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members father we confess this morning that we have not done it that we have failed that we have been afraid of men that we have been afraid to speak your truth, that we have been afraid and ashamed to be identified with you. Father, for this sin and for so many other sins in our lives, we ask for your forgiveness this morning. We ask for you to cleanse our consciences. We ask for you once again, Father, to call us to yourself and to pull us toward yourself and to say, you are forgiven, children. Father, we thank you. 
Thank you that you are long-suffering and kind, that you know our frame, that we are but dust. Thank you, Father, that you do forgive us and that this work has been done through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Our assurance of pardon this morning is from Colossians chapter 1. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Please be seated. Our first lesson this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 6. If you will read along with me. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. And that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? This is the word of the Lord. 
Here we have a glimpse into the end of this present evil age. The prophecy opens up for us a view into the heavenly temple where the Lamb that is worthy begins the work of judgment. The apostle sees the events unfold while he is present. The seals are broken. The conquerors ride forth. In all, four horses and four riders go forth to earth with a holy purpose. The fifth seal is broken, and we see the martyrs of God slain for the testimony they maintained. These are the witnesses who did not fear the one who could kill the body only, but instead they feared him who, after killing the body, could cast both body and soul into hell. Perhaps Abel's voice is heard here, but they are calmed. Rest a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants is complete. Perhaps some of us here this morning are appointed to join them. They are safe from the wrath of God, hidden in Christ. The sixth seal is broken. Every man who has suppressed the truth concerning the holy God will no longer be able to keep the lid down. The great day of God's wrath has come. The holiness of God and the vindication of his Son are unleashed upon fallen men. From the king to the slave, they have rejected the safety of the cleft of the rock, and now they are making every vain attempt to hide from the holy God. They vainly call on the mountains to fall on them in the hope that they would be obliterated rather than having to face the one who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Here a verse from Zephaniah chapter 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Our scripture lesson is from Second Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. That verse, um, verse 12 of chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Have you ever looked at your life and wondered where the persecution is? I know why I don't experience any. It's because I'm a coward. Do you remember the story of the early church father, Origen? When he was a teenager, his father was arrested and martyred for the faith. And Origen found out this was happening and wanted desperately to join his father in death. And the only thing that stopped him was his mother taking his clothes and hiding them away so that the only way he, was allowed, he could go and leave the house was naked. And he was too embarrassed to leave the house naked, and that kept him alive. Well, nobody ever had to hide my clothes. I hide them myself. This song asks the question that follows from 2 Timothy 3.12, a question that's vital for testing the effectiveness of our ministries, a question that reveals whether we love God or mammon. Where are the persecuted? For our last scripture lesson, hear the words of God from Revelation 19. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. 
And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. We are in a fight. But it's not our fight. It's the fight of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes before us. Will we follow after him? Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we have heard your word read. And Father, we confess that we are weak and that the blandishments of this world and the enticements of our own flesh call us away from faithfulness as your servants. And so now we pray that the preaching of your word will stir us up and that we will once again recommit ourselves 
to die that you may be honored, that your son may be lifted high. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, our text is 2 Timothy 4, 1-8. You had it read a few minutes ago as part of one of the scripture lessons, but I'm going to read it again now. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is the last letter of the Apostle Paul to his son Timothy, and likely the last he wrote to anyone before his witnessdom. But, of course, in English, we would call it martyrdom because we've taken the word for witness in Greek and transliterated it into English. And so now we come to the end of that last letter that the Apostle Paul has written. And we see him rising above his usual intensity or zeal for the souls under his care, the souls that have been purchased with the blood of his precious Savior. And he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So the younger pastor gets a charge from the older pastor who is about to have his blood poured out as a drink offering. Or better, the young church planner. Calvin believes that Timothy's calling existed somewhere between a pastor and an apostle, referring specifically to his work planning and taking care of new churches. This is a work of the utmost seriousness that Timothy has undertaken. Or rather, a post of authority in matters of eternal consequence that Timothy has been delegated by the Holy Spirit through the church and through the hands of the Apostle Paul. And if the solemn charge didn't make the impression enough, the Apostle Paul adds that this charge is not coming in the presence of the congregation that Timothy is serving, nor is it in the presence of the presbytery that is concurring in his call, but in the presence of the living God and his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Now, had Timothy forgotten who Jesus was, the Apostle Paul reminded him of that too. This Jesus, Paul reminded Timothy, is to judge the living and the dead. Now, of course, if the meaning of this was that Timothy was to recognize that in the world there are many who have not confessed Christ, and that they should be rescued from the coming judgment, we'd all yawn. 
But that is normally how we would read any reference in Scripture to judgment. We would never apply it to ourselves or to other people who had confessed Christ and were members in good standing of our churches. And yet, here it's not unregenerate souls that the Apostle Paul has in mind, but it is a regenerate soul. And whose soul is it? Well, it is the soul of Timothy himself. The Apostle Paul is reminding Timothy that one day soon he will stand before the Lord of the universe, the Son of the Most High God, to give an account for his work. The Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy that the day is quickly coming when his every idle word, the secrets of his work, of the ministry he's been called to, will be revealed. Nothing will be hidden, all will become clear, and God will judge him. Now, we're not used to judgment today. Pastors today are fire insurance agents, but it's not even the fires of hell so much as the fires of a non-integrated life that we work to save people from. The fire of a broken home, of a broken marriage, of a life of insignificance, of lives lacking the Christian civic religion that still today in most communities and cities is viewed as a necessary aspect of being American. In other words, the fires that pastors call out to the lost to flee from today are the fires of a less significant and a less happy and a less civil life than the life of a good Christian. And if they're wealthy and educated, Presbyterianism works well for them. They can avoid some of the cultural opprobrium, maybe even scorn of being Pentecostal or Baptist. But are these the dangers to which the Apostle Paul is referring? No, Paul is speaking not of the negative judgment of our fellow citizens or family members, but of the living God. And not of his judgment now and today, but of the coming judgment, referred to in Hebrews where it said, "...is it appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment." But even those pastors who have kept judgment, that judgment in our repertoire would not be caught dead speaking of it as a motivation to fellow believers, let alone fellow pastors. It's not graceful. It's not edifying. People, especially pastors, just need to be encouraged. But make no mistake about it, the Apostle Paul here is speaking of the judgment of a believer and of a pastor. And he's doing it in a way that is raising high up in clear sight the specter of what Timothy might expect from his master if he is not found busy and zealous in his work. His commission, the exercise of authority God the Holy Spirit has delegated to him. Now I realize that I'm going out on a limb by making this point so carefully. And so I would like to take a man out on the limb with me and his name is John Calvin. When St. Paul, Calvin writes in his, or preached, uh, this was his sermon on this text. When St. Paul cites Timothy here before the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ, know we that he is to bring him in mind of that which is said by the prophet Ezekiel, that they which are appointed by God to preach his word are as watchmen. And if they will not cry when they see any hurt or danger near, the souls shall be required at their hands. Therefore, if men perish through our negligence when God has appointed us his messengers to preach his word, the blood shall be required at our hands. Remember Paul saying, none of your blood is on my hands in Acts 20. 
the Ephesian elders. We shall be judged before God as guilty for the loss of them all. This is not a federal vision sermon. All right. We're talking judgment of Christians. They which have the office of teaching are more straightly bound and they shall be guilty of the death, not of bodies, but of souls. If they do not, their duty to draw sinners out of the way of destruction. The right way, this is still Calvin, to awake us. In other words, we pastors, the right way to wake us, all right, is to cite us to the judgment of God. And if Timothy, which was like an angel in this world, had need to be stirred up after this sort, what shall we say of ourselves? Which, as so fleshly, which have our minds and wits wandering this way and that way. Let us remember that when we have passed this earthly pilgrimage, we must appear before the heavenly judge. All things shall then be made open and manifest. This is the right way to stir us. When the world holds us, as it were, fast fettered to itself, there must be some fear in us or else we shall never be diligent. That's my heart. That's my heart. I love Calvin. I love Paul. I love the Holy Spirit. And then he finishes with this. He says, the Apostle Paul means to show Timothy that they that leave the flock desolate and keep it not from wolves, that have let the sheep starve for lack of meat, may look for nothing else but vengeance at our Lord Jesus Christ's hands. God must be before us as a judge if we will not have him as our father. That's fascinating. And now the weight of the charge, both now and eternally, has been stated. And the Apostle Paul gives his beloved son Timothy the specifics of the charge itself. Verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Nine commands, nine imperatives, not nine indicatives. But nine imperatives. Remember a few years ago at General Assembly, an elder of one of our Presbytery churches at that time, no longer in our Presbytery, um, lamenting the state of preaching in the PCA and saying, and he was an educated man, and he put it this way, he said, along with the indicative, can't we please have the imperative? Well, the Apostle Paul doesn't hesitate to give us the imperative. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructive. In fact, these are not just nine imperatives, but they're hortatory imperatives. Eight specific commands and one general summarizing the specifics. Timothy is to preach the word. In his commentary in Acts 2, the Apostle Paul when commenting on the devotions of the, the church, Calvin points out that Paul, excuse me, in the comments on Acts 2, Calvin commenting on the four devotions, they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, those four devotions. He says that it's not accidental that it is the teaching of the apostles that begins. And Calvin makes the comment, that doctrine always comes first. And here also he points out that doctrine is the foundation that all the work of the ministry is done on. It is the foundation of our ministry, but not just any doctrine, the doctrine of the gospel contained in the word. What word? 
Not man's word, not Tim Bailey's word, but the word of God. The word of the gospel, the word of the Holy Spirit, and the living word, Jesus Christ, to whom all of Scripture points. Preach the word, or rather proclaim the word publicly. Not simply in the safety of the privacy of Timothy's comfy church, but in the hurly-burly of the world where men mock and scorn and ridicule from unbelief. That's where we're to preach. And when is Timothy to preach the word? In season and out of season. In other words, when it's easy and when it's hard, when he's ready and when he's inconvenienced, when his hearers are ready and when they're inconvenienced. He is to make himself a stink in his zeal for the souls that tell him to shut up. Now, you remember what they said to Moses when he faithfully preached God's message to the supreme ruler of the ancient world, Pharaoh. The Israelites became furious at Moses for preaching out of season, and they came to him to tell him to shut up. And I love the way the King James puts it. They said, you have made us a stench in the eyes of Pharaoh. Not the nose, the eyes. The NASB translates as, they said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, every pastor pouring himself into the ministry, struggling and working and sweating towards faithfulness, has heard similar words countless times. Listen to the Apostle Paul's plaintive plea in the middle of his scorching letter to the Galatians. Galatians 4, verse 11. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. And then verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. It's an intensely personal letter. And then verse 15, he says, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. And so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth. Every pastor, every elder, their heart goes out at that. How many times we've gone to the souls under our care and we've spoken truth to them and we have become their enemy. That's what keeps us from doing a lot of the faithful work in the ministry. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I want to add one verse here because I think it's essential in our postmodern day. He then says this, they, meaning the false shepherds that he's fighting against in Galatians, he says, they eagerly seek you, not commendedly, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. In other words, the Apostle Paul is engaging here as many places in the book of Galatians to a pure ad hominem attack. There's nothing the Apostle Paul doesn't use in caring for the souls. He's not worried about what logical errors he'll make, what accusations he'll face. Paul, that's ad hominem. You're going after the character. No, he's not worried because he has eternity in his mind. He sees it. And he points out that the people opposing him are those who want all the congregation to move over and follow them. Timothy was not to let this sort of thing dissuade him for the work to which he had been called. He was to preach the word in season and out of season. 
He was to be ready in season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with great patience and instruction. Every time I think of this text, probably many of us have it almost memorized or maybe memorized, right? Those of us in the ministry. Every time I think of this text, I always think, now, what are the proportions of positive commands to negative commands? Because as my dad said years ago, evangelicals want everything positive. Can't bear the negative. Everything has to be positive, right? So what is the proportion? He is to reprove, he is to rebuke, and he is to exhort. Now, clearly reprove is not positive, right? So maybe rebuke. Is that positive? Well, no, that's not positive. So how about exhort? Well, you know that you can try to be positive with exhortations, but often they're received, again, as if you're their enemy. And here's how he summarizes. None of them is upbeat. But every one of them is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit when done by faith by men willing to die. Then the manner in which it's to be done. It's not to be done harshly in a self-protective way so that we can reassure ourselves afterwards that our hearts, their hearts were hard and we got them before they could get us. Now this is me again. You know, I know I have a difficult job, so what do I do? Go on in there and... and, and, and you know, the best defense is a good offense. So I cause the offense, and they do the defense, and then I walk away sure that they're not listening to the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says that we're supposed to do this with great patience. We're supposed to do this kindly, that we're supposed to do this in a way where the offense is God and not us. Not harshly. The messenger cannot get in the way of the message. Most times we get in its way by not carrying the message or by trimming the message of its offense. But when we finally raise up to give it to them straight, too often we engage in behavior and use words in such a way as to prepare for rejection. But not rejection of God and his word, but of ourselves and our eminence and our dignity. When the Apostle Paul commands Timothy to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, he's telling Timothy to lay line upon line with faith in God, not giving up easily, but relentlessly, never giving up and never giving himself to a hissy fit over the dim-wittedness and the slothfulness of his hearers. And then he says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. It's very interesting here in his sermon that Calvin points to Rome, he points to the papacy, and he talks about how the papacy is the people in their legalistic mindset surrounding themselves with teachers that will give them false doctrine, which is exactly what they want, right? But then Calvin stops and he goes on and he says, but you know something, this is exactly true in the Reformed Church today, in the Protestant Church. It's exactly the same. And Calvin even is so gauche as to give us a percentage of pastors who are scratching years as opposed to pastors who are faithful and what does he say well think about it if he's going to put a number on it and he's preaching publicly this isn't a private book to pastors what would the number be that he put on it he puts the number quote scarcely two in 100 are faithful and that's what he says publicly to the people in the church scarcely two in 100 
And I go, moi? Me? I'm sure I'm one of those too. Congregation, would you agree? The Bible says here that they accumulate for themselves. The sense in the Greek is they heap up for themselves the way a miser heaps up money. The people heap up for themselves pastors. So when we look at the heap, the heap is scratching ears. This is what Calvin says. This is the case in these latter days. Fairbairn, similarly, points to his evil day. What about today? Today we have many, many hirelings who are perfectly committed to giving the souls under their care what those souls desire rather than what God has said. Pastors and preachers who promise, for instance, their congregants their best life now. Reform pastors who say the same thing as Joel Osteen, precisely the same thing, but in a slightly different form that seems to have more legs theologically. Reform preachers who preach grace, grace, always grace. These two are preachers who are piled up in heaps surrounding the rebellious and imperious sheep, scratching their ears for money. Listen to Martin Luther when he's writing to men that go out and examine pastors to see if they're faithful. This is from his instructions to parish visitors. He says, many now talk only about the forgiveness of sins and say little or nothing about repentance. There neither is forgiveness of sins without repentance, nor can forgiveness of sins be understood without repentance. It follows that if we preach the forgiveness of sins without repentance, that the people imagine that they have already obtained the forgiveness of sins, becoming thereby secure, and this to me is the perfect phrase to describe the evangelicals that I grew up in, the people then become secure and without compunction of conscience. Therefore, Luther continues, we have instructed and admonished pastors that it is their duty to exhort the people diligently and frequently to repent and grieve over their sins and to fear the judgment of God. Nor are they to neglect the greatest and most important element of repentance, for both John and Christ condemned the Pharisees more severely for their hypocritical holiness than for ordinary sins. The preachers are to condemn the gross sins of the common man, but more rigorously demand repentance where there is false holiness. True faith cannot exist where there is not true contrition and true fear and terror before God. Martin Luther. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and then the summary, fulfill your ministry. This is our ministry. And it's a ministry that's extremely difficult. And the only thing that will keep it in mind is having men such as we had lead us this morning, young men who see the coming judgment and who lead us to meditate on it. It's very interesting. If you go back into the colonial times, get some of the Boston camaradas. Uh, CDs. And if you go back to the old hymnody of the church, you'll find frequently the themes of hell and of judgment. Typically, the songs that speak of judgment are during a particular season of the, of, of the year. You know when? It's always harvest. Many, many harvest songs 
that speak of judgment. And if you look at Luther's wonderful hymn, we have the appearance of themes that are absolutely never put in contemporary Christian music. And they're the themes of conflict and the theme of the devil, Satan, and the theme of hell. And we're not going to be faithful to our ministry if we don't recommit ourselves to the doctrine of the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful prophylactic doctrine. And if we look at it, if we meditate on it, if we preach it to our people, and if we think about it at our table and speak to our children about it, if we live in the doctrine of the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, there will be, and this is courage, People ask, what's courage? Well, courage is something that men that are hired for athletic teams that are professional have, right? What is courage? Everybody talks about leadership today. I don't give a plug nickel for any of the talk of leadership today. There is no leadership. What is courage? Courage is simply one thing, and that is to know which way to face. That's all it is. Courage is to know that we should not fear the one who kills the body, but rather the one that has the power to cast the soul into hell. The only courage you'll ever have is by fearing God. And then you'll be fearless. (laughs) And that's what we need to be as men. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Clearly, he's referring to his blood. His blood is about to be poured. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. What a man. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let me close with this from Calvin again. He says, therefore, when the servants of God see themselves thus two or three against a hundred, it might astonish them at the first blush, but they must be armed with virtue from above to fight manfully. For the truth of God will in the end be the conqueror. Though it find not many protectors in this world, yea, and though the most part hunt away and darken it and wholly abolish it, yet it shall always get the upper hand. And therefore, let us take good hearts to us to confirm ourselves when we face the devil rising up men which seek nothing else but to turn the scripture upside down. Let us conclude thus with ourselves that we must neither bow nor flee the field, but be valiant soldiers unto the end. Right on? Right on. One final word that occurred to me just a couple minutes ago. Elders. This is mostly to pastors. But elders, don't ever punish your pastor for being faithful. Don't ever, ever, ever do that. Don't do it. It is a wicked thing for an elder to protect the congregation from a faithful servant. On the other hand, how precious to a pastor are elders who punish him for being unfaithful to Scripture. They're precious to us because they know our flesh. 
And they know that we need the discipline of the Apostle Paul and the discipline of good elders. Let us bow our heads in prayer.